Happy holidays! This time on our special Thanksgiving week edition of Poll Hub, our November America Now Index is out. How do Americans feel about the economy, health, their communities? We're going to take a look. Then, the latest winner of the Roper Center's Matofsky Award, Carlin Bowman, is with us to discuss her work on poll questions in the past and present. And there are some doozies from a long time ago. This one's a good one, so let's get to it. And hi, everybody. Welcome to Poll Hub. I'm J.D. Dapper, Director of Innovation here at the Maris Poll. And I'm Barbara Carvalho, Director of the Maris Poll. And I'm Mary Griffith, Media Director at the Maris Poll. And I'm Lee Marengoff, Director of the Maris College Institute for Public Opinion. It sounds like the way they start 60 Minutes every time when they have this long group of people. So anyway. We'll get the ticking clock for next week. Uh, we have to order <laughs> it, though. That's a sound file we don't have ready. Um, so uh, we've been doing the index now since uh, May was our first index, I believe. Is that right? Yeah. And we did a couple of uh, batteries. We did health and the economy, and then we expanded it in June. Uh, so now we're in November. And the interesting thing to me about indexes is not necessarily what they show the first or second time out. Because, you know, okay, that's great. But I don't know what that means until there's trend. We've got trend now. We've been doing this since really the beginning, the beginning stages of the pandemic and the latter stages of the Trump presidency. And now it's getting really interesting to start looking at what's going on. So what are we seeing in November that is piquing your curiosity? This is the first time we've asked people after the election uh, about their feelings about uh, about these things. We're seeing a reduction uh, in people's sensitivity on a whole host of issues. Um, the number which had been 6.5 nationally as the summation number for the index is now at 6.3. It had been going up, it'd been notching up, and now it sort of took a step downward. Um, and the two uh, most glaring parts of that were on the economic side, where we saw some of the biggest declines I think we've seen in to date on anything, which went from 5.5 to 5.1, which doesn't sound like an enormous number, but as Jay was saying, you know, you get, you know, little little baby steps here. And when you take a, a 0.4, uh, that's, that's, you know, noteworthy. And then also on the question of, of, of people's attitudes towards society and government, a drop from 5.9 to 5.7. And I'll say one more thing and let my uh, partners join in on this if they want to, apparently people aren't eager to join on this, but I will make one more point. We ask four questions for each category, the economy, health, community, and society. So that adds up to a total of 16 separate questions. On this particular poll, this particular measure of the index, one of those 16 went up, one of them stayed the same, and 14 took a decline. Um, so there's a definite change in public outlook uh, about where we are as America now on this National Outlook Index. When we first started this index, uh, which was in the midst of the, uh, the pandemic back in April and May, uh, the numbers were truly abysmal. Um, there were so many uh, negative impressions of the economy, of health. Um, we saw it, you know, in each area how, um, how how people had really been set back. I think what was really interesting, um, and Jay, you were talking about, you know, the that fact that as we 
get more and more trend, the index becomes more and more interesting. And what we found as we had gone into a period of uh, considerable relief um, with, the, with the virus over the summer, we've been seeing many of these numbers uh, increase um, in, in a positive direction. And um, whether it's a, it was the economy and about jobs, whether it was about health and uh, the imminent risk that people felt, um, those were all very positive directions. And we saw that over the summer and even through October. Uh, what has happened, you know, post um, election, and it's not sure that it's because of the election or because we are now uh, facing uh, you know, I believe a, a million uh, cases, uh, positive cases for the virus in a week, a thousand deaths a day. Um, we have seen a very, um, not dramatic, but certainly a concerning shift uh, in, in the index. Yeah, two things that really stand out to me. Actually, a couple things, but more than that. But two things really stand out. One, in, in the health index, um, one of the questions we ask is, um, uh, how much do you agree or disagree with the statement? There's a little risk to your health right now. And when we first asked that in May, it was it stood at 5.5. And I think we were all actually a little surprised that it was that high, but you know that it was still worrying. That climbed all the way to a 6.2 in September, where people were feeling less and less risk. And if you remember, September was pretty much the bottom of that curve. Now we've gone back down to a 5.7, and I think this part of the index is truly tracking. If you put the line up, it tracks the by you know with a little bit of a lag, the uh, the pandemic. And so I think that's interesting to me is that uh, we have we have a line on the pandemic, you know, the cases and what's going on, the hospitalizations, the deaths, and this tracks that. The other is actually um, uh, looking at uh, one of the cross tabs, which we don't do a lot in the index, but I do think it's notable here to talk about the difference between men and women, especially in the economic portion of the index, where uh, women have a, are saying uh, they're at a 4.8 and men are at a 5.4. That's a, a statistically significant difference, and it does, I think, speak to the impact uh, that the economic shock from the pandemic has had on women as opposed to men. And there's other data that backs this up in terms of the unemployment rates and underemployment rates and filings for unemployment where there's this gender difference. But I think we're picking up on that here uh, as well. Across all of the financial uh, questions we ask, men are significantly more positive than women. Yeah, and Jay, when we look at the um, the, ind uh, the indicator uh, specifically referencing jobs, that's been an area of concern since we started um, asking folks and including this index in our work in May. Um, and there's one number that I really want to drill down into uh, is looking at uh, how Americans perceive the next few months for them financially. And this is the first time since May where we're seeing that number drop to below 5.0. It's at 4.9. Um, and that really, I think, ties into and plays into what you were just talking about, the economic impact of the coronavirus crisis. You know, where you can turn on the news, you see the, the lines of people, the lines of cars throughout the country um, to get food because they've, families have find, found themselves in dire straits. You know, they've lost their jobs, they've had to cut back hours all because of the pandemic. And I think that this may uh, show that, that this is really hitting home for a lot of people across the country. 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely. And uh, Mary, you mentioned it's 4.9. It had come from 5.7 last month. So that's a 0.8 drop. That is uh, falling off the cliff when it comes to these kind of statistics. And I might add that between, and I, I'm interested in all your reactions to this, um, the time, you know, since we, we've done this index, prior to that, the last big event was a presidential election. And clearly, there isn't a sense right now, anyway, of relief politically. Obviously, we're, we're having that being contested. Uh, but, you know, the election hasn't done anything to make people feel better, necessarily. I don't know if it should have. Um, and then also, we're, I think we're seeing the effects of the, the absence of a stimulus uh, in these numbers and, and the inability of Washington to get together. But I don't know if anybody wants to just jump in on any of that. Uh, D.C. just doesn't seem to be grinding it out. And people are not necessarily optimistic that that's now what's going to happen. Well, we do ask that as part of the index as well, and I think people are feeling a vacuum of leadership. And I suspect that has something to do with the fact that um, there has been this um, disagreement about uh, about the election and the fact that there is more focus on uh, on the on the outcome rather than Congress uh, and the president getting back to work. Uh, for the stimulus and also for focusing um, on the on the virus well, as well. Um, so absolutely, um, the the other part of that question also deals with uh, social justice, and that continues to lag very very far behind all of the other measures. And that, in combination, I think is presenting a. Uh, you know, it's continuing to present a, a disconnect between Americans um, and, and their leadership. So uh, certainly, um, yeah, Joe Biden is going to have his work cut out for him uh, when he takes the oath of office. I think this is really exciting where we're at, though, because um, we'll be, you know, continuing the index and asking questions month in, month out. We skip a month here and there when, you know, December, I think we, we may miss sometime in the summer when things are over, when things get back to normal, maybe a summertime month where we skip is in order. But I think this is going to be really, really valuable and really interesting. We've laid the groundwork now, or the, the foundation, I should say. Uh, and I think I'm really interested to see what January or February or March, those first 100 days, I'm really interested to see a, a year from the first index, you know, in May of 2021, if things have changed and how much, because what we've seen what, you know, over these last six months is how little has changed. It's been a little up, a little down. We've talked here today about some of the things that did you know, move some distance over those months, but for the most part, it's been pretty stable and not necessarily good stable or bad stable, just stable. And I think a lot of that probably had to do with the fact that we had a, um, uh, an, an unstable stability you know, in the country for the last seven months. We've had a pandemic. We've had an unstable political situation. What happens if and when those things stabilize to this index? I, I'm really excited about this. I'm really looking forward to what we find uh, going forward. Yeah, and whether people think we've changed, you know, turned the page uh, in terms of where we are as a nation. Uh, that's usually what happens in a presidential election when an incumbent gets tossed and a new guy comes in. Um, not necessarily 
everybody's not necessarily going to say, hi, we're now starting the 100 day honeymoon with President Joe Biden. Not sure you're going to get a whole <laughs> whole lot of the whole country and Trump people lining up for that. Well, this is certainly a topic that we're going to be discussing in the coming months. And as Jay points out, it will be really exciting to see what the, uh, in the index shows. Well, we're very happy to have a special guest uh, joining uh, Poll Hub right now, uh, Carlin Bowman, uh, who is the senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, a public opinion analyst and author of many studies. Um, I got to recognize her name because she was the editor of a wonderful publication, uh, which started back in the late 1970s called Public Opinion, which was put out by the American Enterprise Institute. And it was one of the first things that sort of didn't popularize it, but it brought experts to the fore on issues of public opinion. And it was one of those things that you waited in your for the mail to come in those days. Um, but Carlin, thank you for joining us uh, on podcast. And uh, uh, I want to point out that uh, the reason you're here is not only to talk about public opinion, but you are the 20th and most recent recipient of the Warren Matovsky Award, uh, recognizing individuals who've made significant contributions in the field of public opinion survey research. It's awarded by the Roper Center, uh, which I'm a, a member of the board. I voted for you. No, I'm just kidding. No, I actually did, but that, that isn't the reason you're here. But Carlin, welcome uh, to podcast to the podcast and uh, uh, congratulations on your award, uh, which was designated virtually, but uh, you spoke eloquently uh, anyway, but congratulations and welcome. Thank you so much, Lee. It really was an honor to receive the Matowski Award I mean, very good company. Yes, yes. No, it's it's uh, it's a distinction indeed that you should be proud of. Um, one of the things that you talked about um, at the uh, at the ceremony that we had um, was that uh, you've identified some wonderful surveys and question wording from way back when, uh, which sort of talks about a little bit of the times then and the times now. But uh, I wonder if you could just uh, mention a few of the favorites that you, uh, you know, recall from uh, an earlier era that I think talked to how the field has changed. Polling has such a rich history, and that's one of the things I've been very fortunate to examine at the American Enterprise Institute. I tend to look at a particular topic and then go back and find all the questions I can on that topic. And I like to start as early as possible. And of course, with this very rich and deep history, we found a lot of fascinating questions in many areas. I'm particularly intrigued by some of the questions that Elmo Roper and George Gallup asked in the early years in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. And they asked a lot more about people's personal experience in daily lives than pollsters do today. And I would like to see the profession get back to that because I think it's very important. There were wonderful questions about, have you spent a night in jail? Have you gambled? Have you played the lottery? Um, those kinds of things. And I, I just thought those were fascinating because it just told us about how Americans lead their ordinary lives. And I think that's really very important. Um, one of my favorite questions that I don't think will ever be repeated is a question that Roper asked in the 1930s about whether premarital sex was wicked. And they had separate they had separate male interviewers and female interviewers for these in-person surveys. And it was very revealing, as you might expect. Many women had very different answers about that question overall. So those are the kinds of questions, 
questions about ordinary life that I'd like to see the profession get back to. And you're doing a little bit of that with your National Spirit Index. And I think that that's really especially important because most of the pollsters these days, it seems to me, and I'm going on a little long here, seem to follow the lead of the New York Times or the Washington Post in terms of whatever's on the front page. And well, I can take only so many questions about impeachment or the like. I want to know about other things in Americans' lives. Although when you talked about the 1930s, about, you know, have you ever served in jail? Um, <laughs> that almost feels like that could be a contemporary question for American <laughs> politics. I don't yes, know. indeed, a very familiar one. You mentioned also that, um, and I think you said it was Gallup, uh, didn't use the word anger or in a question? Well, none of the pollsters did okay. until very late, wow. nor the word lie. And I expected to find questions about lying during the Nixon administration. And I did find one in the early 1970s, but it wasn't about Richard Nixon. It was about one of his aides, Haldeman or Ehrlichman. And so, again, you're seeing that the tenor of the way we ask questions has also changed. And I think that's that's something worth spending a little bit more time on. The issue of compassion, which is such a big one and prominent one in our politics, we didn't see any compassion questions until the late 1970s. And so, again, the language of the pollsters has changed. We may be a much more emotional society, and that's why we may be asking those kinds of questions than we were at least overtly in the 1950s and 60s. But I think it's worth thinking about what that means. Yeah, I think that's really interesting in the question language, uh, you know, that's that's been there. When you when you think about uh, some of the questions that you just mentioned being asked in the 30s, these weren't phone polls; these were face to face. And it struck me when you said his premarital sex wicked. <laughs> it's the vision struck me of a guy, of a man or a woman standing on the stoop of a house asking that question. It's I mean, <laughs> I can't help but laugh a little bit. But when you talk about those types of questions, getting at America's Americans' daily existence, why do you think we've gotten so far away from that? Because you're right. I mean, you go through not a year's worth, a month's worth of polls, not in an election year. And there's issues questions, but there's very little about Americans. I don't know why we've gotten away from it. I think part of the reason is the polling media partnership, which is here to stay. And it's important for many reasons. But the media's uh, imperatives, I think, are very different from those of our business or should be different from those of our business, where as we can look at things in terms of ordinary life, whereas the media is properly concerned with what's on the front page. But I think the media have a real problem in that they really can't capture the extraordinary nuances, the contradiction, the continuity in public opinion polls um, that we can in a, in a more full exploration overall. But you're absolutely right. Um, I think that's a big question and I think it has to do with the media polling nexus. What question would you ask today if, you, if we could go into the field tomorrow with a poll? What question would you ask that we're not asking? Oh, I'd ask so many. I'd ask those questions. <laughs> okay, have a you, couple. Have you, I mean, I've got, I believe you me, I have a million and I've been collecting them for a long time and want very much to be able to, to field a, a poll um, at some point. I don't know whether I'll ever have the opportunity because AI hasn't been in the survey business until very recently. And uh, I'd ask about, uh, for example, Gallup used to ask a series of questions. What time do you get up in the morning? Um, do you pack a lunch? I mean, a lot of things that would tell us about different segments of the population. Um, did you take a bath? Did you take a shower? I mean, those are just ordinary life questions. I'm interested in what makes a complex public tick. Yeah, you might find a, a few shy respondents on some of those questions. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> 
Well, Carlin, as you know, uh, the field of public opinion and particularly polls can come under some fire every once in a while. And so looking to the future of public opinion research, what do you think the future holds for pollsters? Well, I confess I'm a little worried about uh, election polls going forward. I think we'll wait to see what the American Association of Public for Public Opinion Research tells us about what happened in 2020. But not only have we seen misses in the United States, but we've also seen them abroad. And even in a country such as Australia, where voting is mandatory, before their last general election, every single one of the major polls was wrong, as was the exit poll. And you have to ask yourself about whether or not we can create samples that look like America. Um, I think, as I said, polls are, are more useful to getting it getting it in daily lives, and I hope that we can we can expand our work in those areas. I've seen some of the work of some of the big major corporations in America that, in fact, are trying to understand their customers better and do much more of this in-depth ordinary life polling than I've seen. And they they come up with fascinating trends. For example, I think at Procter and Gamble, they learned perhaps a decade ago that. Cooking used to be seen as a chore, and now for many people, it's a pleasure. Gardening used to be seen as a chore, and now for many people, it's a pleasure. And so again, you they're capturing things that help them understand this complex and heterogeneous culture, and I hope the pollsters will do more of that, and perhaps a little less of following the journalistic herd in terms of you know the 10,000th question on impeachment or whatever the issue might be. Those are important. We need to ask those questions, but I would just like to see a more well-rounded uh, group of questions. You, you, you raise a, an interesting point, which I, I guess I've thought about, but not in this specific way, that the field is um, branded by its election polling, which we always knew was a way to me measure our models and accuracy. But if you think of the public opinion about polling, they think of election polls. And so Gallup, I know now doesn't actually do that. They get into issues. I, I know one of the questions that we're interested in is just the question of whether people are going to take a vaccine if it becomes available in this in this era of uh, the coronavirus. But but it's such an interesting point that you raise that we're really uh, for the media and for other you know, entrepreneurial reasons, the election polls really just seem to drive the brand. Um, and they're asked to be very precise, which may be beyond what the vehicle can provide. I don't know. And of course, those questions have been asked since the 1930s. And so they have a very, very long track record uh, from the major pollsters. They're an important part of our understanding of elections. But um, I'd like to see a little less emphasis on them in the future. And perhaps there will be after 2020. Well, first, of course, we have to get into 2021, <laughs> and uh, we do have this transition going on and, and all of that. Uh, uh, stepping apart, aside from the polling a little bit, what's your impression of what's going on? What are your concerns? What do you think uh, the outcome of this is when we get to Inauguration Day? Not just the outcome, what happens on Inauguration Day, but what happens to America as a result? Well, I think, first of all, most Americans have probably gone back to their ordinary everyday preoccupations, and they're sort of watching this um, uh, as a kind of sideshow. They're not particularly enamored of politics or the way that it runs, and so it probably doesn't surprise them that something else is going wrong. 
Um, I look back and I've spent a lot of time looking at the polling questions in 2000 about Bush v. Gore, that 34-day imbroglio before we knew who the winner would be. What's interesting about the polls from that election is that at no time did Americans see it as a crisis. They thought it was a serious problem, and um, but not a crisis. And, and that, again, indicated to me that even in that period, Americans had gone back to daily life and weren't weren't paying, weren't, weren't riveted to it as most of us are. And if you look at that particular time, most Americans said they would accept George W. Bush or Al Gore as a legitimate winner. If you fast forward to 2016, when that question was asked about Hillary Clinton, about a third of Democrats said they would not accept Donald Trump as the legitimate winner. And now, of course, that number is much higher. So I'm, I guess I'm usually a glass half full person. I think the democracy will survive even this. Um, I'd rather it be over sooner rather than later, as I think we all would. Um, but I think we're 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 resilient. I, I worry, obviously, about deep partisan divisions that we're seeing on all the questions about election legitimacy right now. Um, but perhaps Joe Biden, as he suggested, can uh, make us think about the country in a new way. That would be certainly welcome. Well, if he doesn't tweet as much as the current president, maybe we'll pay attention to something other than the current stream of, <laughs> of tweets that come out of the, the White House. I mean, that's a possibility. I, I suspect his first tweet will be <laughs> received with a real ugh, reaction um, to, to it. You know, um, at the risk of uh, embarrassing you a little bit, because uh, you're obviously a very humble person, and this award you th found was really just, you know, wonderful, which it is. Um, but I, I just wanted to comment that um, uniformly, the people who've worked with you, uh, who you've mentored over the years, um, just uh, spoke on the, on the tape that was presented at the, at the award ceremony at the Roper board meeting, were just, uh, just uniformly uh, sung your praises. Talk about some of the mentoring you've done over, over the years, because I know there's a, there's a whole team of people out there who, who uh, have passed through your door at some point. Well, I feel very lucky. My colleague, Norm Ornstein, and I both arrived at AEI in 1979, so it's been 41 years. And we've sat next to each other for a long time. We have very different political philosophies. We're best friends. Um, we're like old married couples. We sort of <laughs> sentences, but over the years, we've had just an extraordinary group of young people who, for whatever reasons, got interested in polling. And I think of Jennifer Benz at NORC at the University of Chicago, of, of both Kim Parker and Amy Mitchell at the Pew Research Center, um, several people at uh, Echelon Insights, Sean Trendy at Real Clear Politics. And so we've had lots of people go through our doors and we just feel very fortunate that we made it interesting to them and that they've gone on and, and done further work in this field, which I think is a wonderful field. Yeah, whatever formula you were using, it certainly has worked. Do anything on your plate right now that you're studying or we might expect from uh, from your from your typewriter, as I would call it? <laughs> yes, that's what I would call it, too, Lee. But I'm, right now I'm looking at polls on the Electoral College and the National Popular Vote um, and to see whether or not um, the issue doesn't to appear to have much intensity. I'm not sure it will have a lot of intensity with Joe Biden in the White House. But it's interesting because going back to the questions asked by Gallup starting in 1944, 
Um, I think there may have been only one poll of the scores of them since that time that showed support for keeping the Electoral College. Um, but it is not an issue that appears to have a great deal of intensity. And so it's just something that's been in the background. That may be changing, but that's what I'm working on right now. Looking at people's knowledge of the Electoral College, I mean, I, I've had to sort of reread one of the AI books myself to know exactly what happens when. And um, uh, so I'm going to just see what the data show. But uh, again, Gallup started asking about the Electoral College in the 1940s. And the, what's interesting about their questions is that they've kept the wording pretty much the same in several batteries of questions on the Electoral College for a very long time. Well, I, I would say uh, that the Roper Center Board couldn't have made a better choice uh, this year in the name of Warren Matofsky, who was a friend of ours, and we knew uh, he was sort of the grandfather of uh, random surveying and all kinds of things. I, 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 every time we get into kind of like a corner like we are right now, I, I miss Warren even more because of his ability to uh, to kind of look at things with a with a fresh a fresh view. Yes, he was absolutely wonderful. Yeah, well, Colin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank it's you. a special segment, and we're glad you could uh, you won the award, and we're glad that you could share your insights with us today. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you so much, everyone. That'll do it for this session of Poll Hub. Poll Hub is a production of the Marist Poll at Marist College in Poughkeepsie, New York. Mary Griffith is our executive producer and was on the show today. Casey Schaff is our editor. Amelia Morell, Leo Ruiz, and Madeline Jones are our production assistants. And Marcello Bettman, who has taken on the big task today of editing this mess, is our editor. And of course, Hudson is our mascot who lives in the Morell residence. We'd like to thank also the Roper Center Archives at Cornell University for providing us the ability to look back at survey questions and results over the decades as we did only just a few moments ago with Carlin Bowman and the award that she won. And if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to us on social media. We're at Maris Poll on Twitter and Maris Poll on Facebook and Instagram. Take a look there. Uh, you'll find some interesting tidbits as well. And our production assistants uh, will love to hear from you and pass, uh, pass your comments on to us. And finally, if you'd like what you hear on Poll Hub, please consider leaving a review on your podcasting app of choice. We love positive reviews. It helps others find us. Uh, and while you're at it, if you haven't already subscribed, please do. And on behalf of the Poll Hub crew, I'd like to wish everyone a very happy Thanksgiving. Until we meet again, please stay safe, stay healthy, and enjoy the holiday.